This is Episode 9. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. We have a special edition of the All Hazards podcast this time around. In light of the ferocity, destructive power, and unique circumstances factoring into the Erskine fire near Lake Isabella in Southern California, we're going to talk with four members who are on the front lines of the battle down there. As this podcast is being published, the Erskine fire has burned more than 45,000 acres, destroyed 220 homes, and killed two people. It's an immense undertaking, involving mutual aid from many agencies and areas around the state, including 50 Cal OES engines, 59 local government engines, and more than 1,700 firefighters. So in this episode, we're going to turn to our information team on the ground at the fire. Monica Vargas, John Larimore, and our information and media chief, Brad Alexander. Now, Brad was able to grab a few minutes, first with Kern County Fire Chief Brian Marshall, then with Kern County Fire Captain Steve Pendergrass, followed by Environmental Health Director Donna Fenton. Now, Brad ends the series of interviews with Battalion Chief Brent Moon, who was assigned as the EOC Director. A little bit of a fish out of water there for him, but he'll talk about that. Now, each has their own stories to tell about their concerns, their challenges, and unique difficulty in fighting the Erskine fire, and really what lay ahead for the long recovery process. So we start with the self-introduced Chief Brian Marshall, in front of the mic with Brad Alexander. Brian Marshall, Fire Chief, Kern County Fire Department. How long have you worked for the department? I've worked 29 years for the Kern County Fire Department. And uh, can you describe where we're at in the world? What kind of uh, geographies around here? We're in the Kern River Valley, which is home to Lake Isabella. And this is one of the prime recreation areas in Kern County. When we don't have a drought, we have a lot of water in the lake running through the Kern River, which actually flows down into Bakersfield. And we have a lot of residents that come up and visit the Kern River Valley in the summer. And they actually uh, kayak down the whitewater rapids of the Kern River. Are you a native son of Kern County? Yes. So you grew up here? I, I, I grew up here. My father was a firefighter, so I followed along in his footsteps. And now I'm the fire chief of the Kern County Fire Department. Today's, uh, this last few days have been pretty rough for you, I imagine. This has been uh, an extremely uh, difficult couple of days. Uh, we all had our fingers crossed that we wouldn't have this magnitude of fire. Our initial activity, our initial attack activity over the past several weeks have been extremely high, but we've been very successful in catching the fires while they're small. And that's been the cooperation of all the different agencies that respond here in Kern County. We've been able to get the air tanker support, uh, hand crews, bulldozers, and actually able to catch the fires while they're fairly small. This fire, the Erskine fire, started at the wrong time, in the wrong location, with the wrong weather conditions. The Kern River Valley is a microclimate in the aspect that we receive an influence from the Central Valley as winds blow up the Kern River Canyon. And we also have the Eastern Kern, the Mojave Desert, 
which has hot, dry winds coming off the desert. And it kind of comes together in the Kern River Valley. And wildland fires that burn up here in the afternoon typically burn across the face of the mountain, whereas normally they burn up. Uh, you have to know how to fight fire in the Kern River Valley, we say. Um, so this fire started, as I said, in the wrong location. It, it was aligned with the wind. And before our fire units got on scene, the fire was already moving out. It had 30 mile an hour gust on the wind, or uh, on the fire, 20 mile an hour sustained. And it just pushed the fire and it was gone. So now it's been 24 hours almost. What's your top concerns or priorities for uh, the firefight? Well, we're gonna face the same weather conditions this afternoon as we faced when the fire started. So we're throwing everything that we can at the fire to try to keep the structures in our communities protected. And um, what's been the reaction in the community so far that you're hearing uh, of this particular incident? Well, I think what's going on in the first 24 hours is there's a lot of rumors uh, amongst the community on how many structures have been damaged or destroyed. Uh, evacuation orders were issued almost immediately when our fire units got on scene. So a lot of people have been displaced out of their homes since yesterday afternoon. We don't have a good count right now because we're still actively engaged in the firefight and it's been real dangerous to get units into the areas where all of these structures are burnt. Let's talk a little bit about the drought that you had mentioned. Right. What sort of impact or role do you think that's had on this uh, fire? The drought, five years here in California, this area has been really impacted. Uh, this is one of the areas where Regular drinking water from groundwater, the water wells, has been an extreme concern. Uh, border, borderline failure of water systems. Uh, right across from our fire station, we're storing uh, plastic water tanks for people when their system does fail. So the drought in the Kern River Valley has uh, impacted not only the community, but the economic tourism because no water in the Sierras, no water in the Kern River, thus no water in Lake Isabella. So Lake Isabella literally dried up last year. Are you seeing any uh, mutual aid flowing in already from the, the region? We immediately called for structure protection strike teams for the Erskine fire. As the mutual aid system works, we work within our operational area to uh, draw down as many resources because they're the ones that are quickly available. As the fire grew in magnitude, we went outside our operational area into Region 5, and then ultimately it's been pushed out across the state of California. And of course, CAL FIRE, the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, all have personnel on scene fighting this fire. The weather and the wind changing where the fire drops into Erskine Creek and then crosses over into Lake Isabella proper and that means a whole bunch more evacuations, a whole lot of structure protection and the potential for 500 to 1500 homes being threatened uh, this afternoon. 
And we, you already were just talking to me about the amount of homes that you think might be impacted, some of those being firefighters' homes. Right. We know for a fact that some Kern County firefighters that were actively engaged in fighting the fire yesterday afternoon actually lost their homes to the wildland fire. And what are we looking at right here? What's this ridge or what's on that other side there? This is a major drainage. It's called Erskine Creek. And it's, this area has been the site of several major wildland fires here in, in the Kern River Valley. Uh, most recently, the Paiute fire actually burned from the south to north. This fire is burning more north to south, southeast, but it's burning in the same area. If the fire drops down into this drainage and aligns with the wind, then it will blow the fire into the community of Lake Isabella. And again, this is a community where a lot of people live. This is the heart of the, the commercial area for the Kern River Valley. So the potential for loss is extremely high. So it looks like there's already a heavy helicopter attack on that area right there. Right, it's been a air show up there with uh, helicopters working this. On the east side of the fire, we're concentrating with air tankers. Uh, to contain that part of the fire. We have a lot of critical infrastructure, including uh, green energy projects, uh, the windmills that sit up in the, the Mojave Desert, Jawbone Canyon area. So that vital infrastructure we need to protect. So it's definitely an all out assault, ground, air, you name it, we're using it. Steve Pendergrass, Battalion Chief. How long have you worked with current fire? I've been at Kern County Fire Department for 17 years. And the incident we're at right now, where are we at? You're in uh, Lake Isabella right now. Um, we're on the Erskine Fire, and uh, we're at the Lake Isabella ICP sitting in Engineer Point. And can you describe this area a little bit for me? So this here is actually the Kern River Valley. So it's um, geographically located in Kern County. Um, ties in uh, the Lake Isabella, Kern River, uh, Kernville, South Fork, South Lake area, and roughly we're Kern County. Can you do me a favor and take your sunglasses off? I can't see. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you could just describe the area that we're in a little, uh, one more time. Okay, we're in the Kern River Valley in Kern County, California. Uh, it's the uh, northern portion of Southern California, uh, about uh, 90 miles northeast of Bakersfield. And this area is a very a lot of fire activity through the summer, or is it uh, not a fire active area? It's a fairly uh, high fire activity area. Never anything to this extreme, but we've had some pretty significant fires here before. How would you describe this fire, the Erskine fire? Well, this fire was a fast moving fire running in grass and uh, brush models. Um, it didn't match any of our previous fire history that we've had like this before. It, uh, Cook Peak is this area up here. Um, it normally it hangs up on Cook Peak, and we're able to catch it and you know put this thing to bed within about two three days, and and we're now it spotted well well in advance of that. And what are your priorities right now? Uh, current priorities across the board are all structure protection. So we've got a uh, um, two uh, structure groups with multiple engines, and as more stuff's coming in, we're just adding to it. And uh, what are you most worried about right now? Our two top priorities are the South Lake area, um, Mountain Mesa, Squirrel Valley, um, north of 178, going east, and then in the Erskine Creek area, uh, as it's starting to work its way into the drainage behind us, if it starts to come out of there and making a run toward Lake Isabella. 
Do you ever see a, this type of a fire as a possibility in this area? We've pre-planned fires similar to this, but uh, all fire history and lake influence and um, all the canyon influences usually prevent activity like this from happening. With the drought, the fuels that were two, three foot tall grass, and then the wind event that just occurred, that's, that's ultimately, it was, everything was aligned for perfect storm. Yesterday afternoon when we came in, um, the initial call was reported to be a light smoke showing um, at the point of origin. Contacted the IC, I was coming in from Bakersfield, contacted the IC, asked if he wanted more resources, to put the request in for more when I got on scene. It had already made the run up to Cook's Peak um, and was beginning to start, uh, spot over the top. We ordered as much as we possibly could get and, uh, and then some and uh, then it started to make a run toward uh, continuing north and east and a fairly narrow uh, fire pattern. And then as it hit the other canyons, it widened the pattern out and started pushing toward the, the other communities. It's still unknown number of houses that, we've, uh, that have been consumed, but uh, at this point, we're, we've just been fire following through all of the, the structures, trying to save as many houses as we can and, um, and just move on to the next one. Try to get as many people out, save as many structures and animals and properties as we could get. Yeah, and a lot of narrow canyons and narrow one-way, well, they're two-lane two roads, but one way in, one way out, so it makes it difficult for us to actually physically get the, the person out of the, or get everybody out while we're sending resources in. So it bottlenecks the, the response. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough equipment responding, or that was on scene because it was we were spread so thin because it was moving so fast. So it didn't become as much of an issue for us getting in as it was for them getting out. And then a lot of people decided to stay. And so as the fire made a run into their areas, um, you know, we'll, we're, we're gonna have to see what happened. Donna Fenton, and I'm the director of Kern County Environmental Health. And have you worked here very long in your position or um, familiar with the I've, I've been with Environmental Health for 27 years, um, but I've only been director for the last um, three years. And is that whole time in Kern County? Yes, the whole time with Environmental Health. Um, so you've got a ton of experience uh, in the area and on the subject matter. Um, where does this incident kind of fit in your mind? In Environmental Health? Well, um, Environmental Health is a division of public health. So actually right now I'm representing not only Environmental Health, but Public Health and EMS as a division as well. But as far as Environmental Health goes, um, I've been talking with other directors of environmental health that had similar wildfire incidents in their counties and trying to get myself up to speed. We've had wildfires before, but not as bad as this one has been. And so our involvement has been in the past for wildfire. Um, some of the same concerns with environmental health as we're having now, which would be um, smoke inhalation. In this particular fire, um, it sounds like smoke inhalation is not that big of a public health issue, but it can be, um, especially for those that have asthma or respiratory conditions. Then we also worry about the ash itself. Um, depending on the home or the structure that has burned, um, that ash can contain heavy metals, it can contain lead, it can contain, um, it can contain asbestos. Um, and if somebody is digging around in it, a lot of that can be inhaled and cause severe health issues. So that's one of the things we want to get the word out is um, as you're going back, you know, you're wanting to see if there's anything left of your home or your structure that um, you use proper respiratory protection. Don't start, you know, raking through it as we've seen and digging through it without that because 
If the fire burned through, let's say, your structure and in the garage you had chemicals, those chemicals can still be concentrated there and um, that can get absorbed into the ash and then you can inhale it and it can you know, cause health issues that way. So that's one of the other issues we look at. Then um, the other thing that we are dealing with right now is um, when there's a fire going through, a lot of these rural areas, they're on water well systems. So those water systems, um, if the fire actually burned across the well, then there's a lot of times there's damage to the well itself. So that could lead to them not having a potable water source, but also just the power out to a well can cause a disruption in the pressure from the pump and it causes um, a backflow situation where it draws into the well some potential contaminants. So we have been notified by the California Department of Public Health that several of their systems, which are the larger water systems, are put on what they call a boil water notice. That means the, the resident shouldn't drink or cook with the water um, without boiling it first or they should use bottled water until that um, it has been tested and deemed that it's safe. So that's another issue that we're dealing with. And then of course the aftermath, um, the post-fire recovery process is really going to involve a lot of environmental health staff because we're going to be there. Um, their septic systems have been affected, um, their water wells have been affected, and if the structure is burned, part of the process of rebuilding will involve us. But then the major um, problem is the debris management. Um, there's going to be a lot of debris that's left behind. A lot of that could potentially have contamination um, from the same things I just talked about, asbestos or heavy metals. That can't go to just any landfill. It has to be one that's lined so that that doesn't potentially contaminate groundwater. And then again, if there were chemicals, um, sometimes you're seeing um, like uh, automobile repair shops that have a lot of chemicals that may have been destroyed or burned in the fire and that left behind could cause environmental damage. So again, the concern is that any of that would get into the, potentially get into the groundwater and contaminate groundwater sources. And since everybody out there is dependent on groundwater sources for their water source, we wanna make sure that that's properly cleaned up after, after the initial fire emergency is over with. And were the hospitals and the EMS <coughs> services here uh, fairly overwhelmed with the response on this incident? Right, the um, EMS has been working closely with the one hospital that's located there. Um, to, at first they had um, sheltered in place with their patients and went on generator power, but now it's looking like they are going to have to evacuate. So they're working closely with them to make sure that they have not only the transportation for those patients, but then the other hospital locations that they can be transported to. Um, EMS is also making sure that um, if there's any um, supplies needed, um, we're talking about potentially taking up boxes of the N95 um, masks they're the air respirator mask that you would wear if the residents start going back into their homes to do the cleanup. That way they're not inhaling some of the potential ash that has the contaminants. And then also public health has sent nurses there um, to the shelters. We wanna make sure that anybody that has medical needs, that those needs are being addressed at the shelters. Um, our staff also takes a look at the shelters to make sure that 
that the food is being protected again with the water situation. You don't want a shelter that's potentially on a boil water notice to be using that water to prepare food or um, to ha use it for drinking water. And um, so they're making sure that that's taken care of. So they've done some shelter inspections as well. Um, those are some of the areas that we look at. One of the other things that we'll do um, as the uh, fire camp set up for the firefighters has to prepare food. We'll want to make sure the last thing they would want to have is a foodborne illness that's ha that has occurred before. Um, so we will do an inspection of the kitchens that are serving the food for the firefighters as well. Where does this sort of rank in the um, incidents that you've been a part of in your uh, decades of experience with the county? Uh, this is the largest incident I've, I've been a part of and it has um, required more of our environmental health resources as well as public health resources than I've seen before. Have you had to sort of adapt or create new uh, functions or thought processes to respond to this? Um, we have. Um, we um, activated our DOC for the public health department and so we had from environmental health alone we had um, four people there that were experts in, in water, hazmat, um, and, and food, and solid waste. So we wanted to make sure we were covering all our bases. Um, That's the other thing I failed to mention, the hazmat. Um, we did some initial mapping of all of our hazardous materials facilities. We had our GIS specialist because um, there's the, we would have the chemical inventory for like the flammable liquids that the firefighters would want to know about. Um, we don't have everything mapped, so like if it's an individual home and a propane tank, we wouldn't have that. But if it's the propane tank supplier that has the large quantities of propane, they would want to know where those were at, so their firefighters would be able to stay a safe distance from that propane tank. Um, also, it's um, chemical storage, petroleum storage products, any of that, we would want them to know where those were located. and because that would obviously cause a concern for their safety. Um, so we initiated the DOC and started work right away as soon as the fire broke out. Um, we started working on mapping all of our hazmat facilities, all of our water wells, and um, so we would have that information ready and available. Once the fire is put out, that's probably in the recovery phase is probably where we'll be most engaged. Um, we're going to have our teams go out and help with the assessment of the chemicals that might have been left behind um, with potential damaged containers that could leak or release. Um, we're going to have to look at the water sources and make sure that all of the, the water wells have been tested to make sure that, you know, the bacteriological test comes back or that the contamination hasn't occurred and it's safe to drink. So, Brent Moon, uh, Deputy Chief, Kern County Fire Department. Uh, been there for 32 years. Been in the fire service for about 34. Wow. And what's your role here? Uh, I'm acting as the EOC director for the Kern County EOC in relation to the Erskine fire. What's been your reaction so far to this incident? Um, this incident's been very dynamic because we had a fire a rapid uh, spread covering uh, 30,000 you know, acres within less than 24 hours, burning many homes. And so it's really impacted us heavily, and we're having um, quite a few struggles with communications, the remoteness of the fire, and supporting it. And uh, big objectives for you as the EOC director? Our big objective here is basically to support the people that have been displaced, the survivors of the fire. 
We have a lot of areas that have been evacuated and those areas um, are still evacuated. So long-term removal from their homes and dealing with the fire. What are some of the successes you've had so far? Uh, so far, uh, Red Cross, being able to open up shelters, provide that service effectively. Red Cross has been a huge player in this. Uh, being able to uh, pull our uh, public health department out to uh, deal with specific issues to help people identifying hazards, a lot of support from the community uh, and vendors like that for water, drinking water is a huge thing, bottled water. And from the mutual aid side of the house, are you seeing a lot of success there? Mutual aid, you know, I'm, I'm still from, from the fire service, so yeah, fire service mutual aid is great as far as outside of that and the support of things. We are pulling stuff together, but a lot of it is the county resources, of course, uh, OES here to help us and that, so we are getting outside help, yes. And um, what are the big things that you're looking at for the next few days? Because this is obviously not a, a quick fire, something that's not going to be handled very quickly. You have to only... You've got the response phase that's still happening, and you got to think about the recovery phase as well. Exactly. So as the fire response phase is winding down, we're just doing the opposite. We're winding up. Um, the, the challenges of just the duration of the people being removed from their houses, from moving back into their houses, uh, the mental, physical, and health issues we'll be dealing with to be able to provide uh, shelter, housing, and safety for these people. And... Have you ever experienced anything like this before in your uh, decades of experience? Not in Kern County. I think uh, we've had fires that have progressed through the area. We've lost, uh, you know, 30 homes and 20 homes like that. But uh, to lose this many homes and have communities where we have a lot of our personnel have lost their homes. Um, it's very unique to us, yes. I heard uh, that firefighters were essentially going past their own homes that they saw on fire to put out their neighbor's house or a, a distant neighbor's home. Right. Very tight-knit community. The, many of our people that work in that area live in that area. And so, yeah, their neighbors and friends and their commitment to their community has really been strained and tested. Um, anything else that you'd like to note about the successes or objectives that you're working on? I think the biggest thing, the challenge is for these um, uh, multi-discipline type of support functions and, and, and the ICS structure is it's quite difficult oftentimes for people to be prepared for an incident even though you have exercise and that you really don't you're not really prepared as you should be uh, as like in the fire service law enforcement EMS we deal with that kind of stuff on a regular basis but bringing everybody up to speed is really a challenge it's great to have an incident you can learn and build from, although nobody wants those incidents to occur, but it's really, that's about the only way to really develop it is having a real incident. Now, just to follow up on that statement you made, were you prepared for this incident? In this role, typically I've always been involved in the fire aspect of it, and this role of support, it is quite different, and so I've, I have uh, learned some things in the process. Um, is it making you have to step back from being a typical BC or a battalion chief or a guy out on the line uh, telling guys to run hose or helicopters in a certain direction, mm -hmm. that icy sort of role versus uh, this like larger incident management? Right. I think it is, uh, you know, uh, things are much easier when they're tangible. You can see them and touch them. And when you're kind of removed, you're doing things through other departments that aren't directly under your control of your department. You know, working with public health is great. but. It, it's, it's indirect, and it's, um, it's a different process. So the Erskine Fire is unique in many ways. Yeah, the firefighters say they're 
you have to know how to fight a fire in that valley. It can be unlike anything anyone has ever seen. Of course, public health officials are heavily involved now, but will be even more so once the recovery phase hits its stride. They have to make sure the groundwater isn't contaminated because that's what everyone there relies on for potable drinking water. So going into the first few days of July, they say they'll be winding down response and winding up recovery. It's a long road, but they'll get there, right? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the All Hazards Podcast. I'm Sean Boyd at Cal OES headquarters near Sacramento. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.